Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Samuel Adams Returns, and this is Tom Novolis, your host. And yes, those Anti-Federalists did get it absolutely correct. I know I changed your order up a little bit on you, but the fact of the matter is, as it is for today's program in particular, we have the church and state theologically, it's theological polity muddled. And I'm going to be doing this in maybe a three, four-part series, so hang on. This is going to be a long month in February regarding what this is all about. And I'm going to focus on three key people with some historical time frames between them. The first being Jonathan Mayhew, the next one being Reverend Stiles, and the last being Francis Schaeffer. And the three of them kind of twist together over our historical time period. What I really want to bring to you, and, and what stimulated this was not just my research and a historical perspective as to what was our nation like uh, from that continuity at the time of the American Revolution? What gave it continuity? I, I have to say that in these studies that I have done to get to this point is that we're in the same pickle we were at that point in time. Unfortunately, this time, as predicted by the Anti-Federalist, we are in the pickle of our own doing because we have not maintained a religious moral and virtuous people. And we know we can go back to what John Adams may have said or Madison, and however you may quote it, is that this constitution that we have is only for that classification of people, not for anybody else. And so what was going on then in similarity that then drove us to the revolution, and where are we now, and what's going to happen is yet to be seen in our period of time. But we can look at the church and the state are both theological. Now, I've told you this over and over and over again. You cannot get away from it, even within the context of a state. They're theological. They're theological either as pure humanism, as we've seen all the way back in Rome, as we saw in Greece, as we would see in any of the other ancient nations, is that their whole polity, which that definition is the form or constitution of a civil government, uh, of a nation or state, you know, as a, and this is from the uh, 1820, what, 26, 29 dictionary. So these words will give you that right there out of uh, who we have from Webster. And so it, it deals with that whole system, a framework of how things are governed within a particular society, where the powers are, what the duties are, you know, how it's designated, and we see in many of the writings 
of the American Puritans in particular talking about the polity even in reference to the church. And so that is also referred to uh, in Webster in that it's the general fundamental principles of government of any class of citizen considered in an appropriate character or as a subordinate state. So therefore, where the whole Christian world to revert back to the original model, how far more simple, uniform, and beautiful would be the church appear, and how far more agreeable to ecclesiastical polity instituted by the holy apostles. And that, again, was out of Webster in how he defined polity in the two contexts. So we're dealing with exactly that now. And, quite frankly, at that time of, say, we're going to go to the Stamp Act, because uh, that's what we're going to get to with Mayhew, we can look and see that both the church as well as government was muddled. Now, what's muddled? We, we hear that used by a number of different people from time to time. Well, muddled is a verb to make foul, turbid, or muddy in the case of water. But the definition that I want to apply, especially in the Christian context for our present time, is the to intoxicate, to cloud or stupefy, well, particularly with liquid, but uh, liquor, but, you know, this is to cloud or stupefy. So what I don't want to get into the weeds of, because there's some references to the particular muddling that is going on in present-day United States across the Christian body in so many different ways, and in particular uh, to a specific uh, pastor, quite frankly, in my area, and uh, that the generalization or even the specifics in response uh, is quite interesting to that because it is a deep theological perspective within the context of church polity as well as civil that is all muddled, both at the civil level as well as the church. And so it's become that foul and turbid, muddy water with additionally, I will say and qualify here in the next sentences or few, is that it is muddled in such a way that it is really a clouded and stupefying results to all the nation. Across Christianity, it is, you know, answers and and just the basis of it is even intoxicating, and it, it's in the people are responding as if they are drunk, as if they're intoxicated, or what we see, and here it is, from the past to now the present, it's no different than the difference between the Puritan fathers of this nation, those that understood the sovereignty of God in totality across 
every aspect of life, including civil government, to the Tories and the Tory preachers, most of them the Anglicans and the Catholics of that day, who were just tied to the king. And the king, if they were a Catholic king, and tied within the context to their religious perspective and how that theology then rang into how England would function. So what we have during this period of the Stamp Act, which I'm going to talk to you about with Jonathan Mayhew in particular, the idea of the Stamp Act is that the difference between how the Protestant patriots would look at it and the Protestant pulpits responded to it, indifference and being different to the Tories, the Anglicans, who were 100% supportive of the king and parliament. And as we'll learn in this letter from Jonathan Mayhew, the pretenders. Now, don't think that that concept of the pretenders is the same as Joe Biden in the White House. Maybe it's somewhat similar remotely, but you're going to have to study your history on your own to understand what the pretenders in England were all about. But mostly, I think it's important that we take a look at our time is no different because of the great fundamental that I talk about on this program over and over and over again. Does that mean I'm a broken record? Well, probably. Some of you may think that. Is that the pulpits for the greater portion in these United States, excluding all the liberal uh, pulpits and theologians and churchgoers and all of that, because they don't have anything. Their theology is so perverse that it's no theology, uh, or I guess you could call it no theology, or would you call it really, well, a perverse theology. Let's keep it at that. But when we look at the evangelical world, and we look at what has happened going back, as I say, right when Harvard transitioned and it became and started having Unitarian Universalist as the presidents and increasing in the staff, humanism leaked in. So then the major denominations, as we see now in one of the major offbeat denominations coming from the the foundational denomination of congregationalism is now so perverse, you you, you would never recognize one at the beginning to what it is now, and you shouldn't. So the point that I want to start with for this program and as we get into the others is just a little tidbit. So in the newsletter, you'll see where I give a little bit more introductory quote where I'm going to jump to 1976. 
is with Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer warned, you have to understand, not only did our uh, anti-federalists warn, and certain Puritan pulpits warn, but in years later, Francis Schaeffer warned that there would be an establishment tyranny. And I'm just paraphrasing right now. Go read the newsletter to get the exact definition. But you would not only have the new left, which came about in the 60s and into the early 70s, but you had the growing establishment consisting of those who called themselves conservatives as well as incorporating the new left. So when we talk about uniparty nowadays, we were warned about that and told to have that as a central component in our minds, especially within the context of the churches, to be able to stand against that. Well, the establishment at that time is something that Jonathan Mayhew talks about, and we're going to get into that as we move into the second and the third segment. I also wanted to mention real quickly here, and this is an introductory piece, is that of Ezra Stiles and what he was writing in uh, his sermon on the United States elevated to the glory of honor after the Constitutional Convention and that going into place. And he hit upon uh, several key components that were there, and one being what reason we have to expect that by the blessing of God, these states may prosper and flourish into a great American republic and ascend into high and distinguished honor among the nations of the earth. And then two, is what he elaborates on as well, is that our system of dominion and civil polity would be imperfect without the true religion, or that from the diffusion of virtue among the people of any community would arise the greatest secular happiness, which will terminate in this conclusion, that holiness ought to be the end of all civil government, that thou mayst be holy people unto the Lord. So we're going to have fun with Ezra Stiles as well over the next uh, several weeks through this month of February. Sam Adams understood the great fundamentals of this cross-section of Christian polity, Christian biblical reformation dynamics as it takes and comes across, and God being sovereign over all of creation. Come on back for the next segment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this second segment of Samuel Adams Returns. Uh, those anti-federalists, they got it right. And we're going to jump right into uh, the Jonathan Mayhew's sermon that he was asked to give uh, during this repeal of the Stamp Act. Now, we know that the Stamp Act was extremely egregious and was really what uh, started to bring in some additional festering as to why uh, others were thinking that, hey, we need to pull away from England, we need to go with uh, that full idea of self-determination and government and governing. Uh, we knew that the charters were starting to be impacted 
uh, from the original charters that were given to the various colonies, and that the Stamp Act was most egregious in a mechanism to already uh, steal more money from the colonies in support of what occurred during the French and Indian War. Now, Jonathan May, you had a very interesting um, career, if you will. His preaching, teaching, uh, he was definitely more of a Puritan perspective. And this was written in 1776. Now, most interesting, and if you want, you can find more history on Jonathan Mayhew by looking it up, and you can uh, look into the uh, uh, clergy and pastors. The cler- I mean, uh, yeah, the clergy of the American Revolution, as well as the there's other writings that he has in particular. But think about this, and I want to want you to keep this in reference as we listen to especially the opening components. So we're not going to cover all of this because, quite frankly, if, you, if a pastor today was going to give this sermon, uh, I think that they would have to take and lock all the doors and bring in a meal uh, and do something else to take and keep people's attention because moderns do not have a capacity to sit and listen, let alone read, the details that are in here. And moderns in particular have no reference to all of the goings-on. And I'm going to try and bring some of that to you in parallels to our present experiences. And probably what we could look at in a great parallel from the harm that was done by the Stamp Act and the harm that is being done right now in America is the open border policies and and the legislation that's there and a lot of the other internationalism, uh, the harm that is being done here. And that's what the Stamp Act did. And and we're going to see that uh, Mayhew points out what that harm was. But this is a 28-page, single-spaced document, sermon. So when we look at it, it basically has over 11,000 words in this sermon, 11,000 words. And you think that people speak at a good clip at 60 words a minute, 60 words a minute. You do the math, divide 60 into that 11,000, then you'll know how many minutes it would take. And then if you know math a little bit more, you can divide the minutes And make an hour, and you'll get how many hours you would have to sit here and listen to this sermon. So I'm not going to belabor all the introduction, but critical to understand, as I'm prefacing this, is that he delivered this sermon in 1766, and then he he died. He died in July of 1766 at the age of 46. Young man did not see what came next with the Townsend Acts and all of the other aggressions that then came forward to the colonies. So as you 
here. And as I summarize what is going on in this sermon to the people of the day, I would ask you to take into consideration that he understood the time and place of the occurrences of the Stamp Act, but never saw or was involved with anything after that and the immediate actions of the Townsend Act and everything that came after it quickly in the later 1760s and early 1770s. So let's go. So with the repeal of the Stamp Act, Mayhew uses uh, the, the Psalms, and he comes out and he says, Our soul is escaped as a bird from the snare of the fowler. The snare is broken, and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Very interesting. And, and we'll see how he discusses this as we go deeper into the sermon. Now, he opens up and he talks about that the, the late gracious appearance of a divine providence for us in the day of our trouble seems so reasonable, so signal, so important, in a word, so interesting to the present and future generations that we of this society thought it expedient to agree among ourselves upon a day in order to take a particular religious notice of it and to praise the name of the Lord in whom is our help. We don't do that as a society. We don't call for that greater prayer, that understanding. But the bottom line here is that just in the opening, what we have is that Mayhew acknowledges God's involvement in the affairs of men. Why is that important? Because we have so many that believe, and in the church, and this is where I talk about the church being a muddled mess in its fundamentals and its theology, is that in the evangelical realm, there are many that do not believe that God is involved in the affairs of men today. He's out there. He's doing something without understanding the full sovereignty of God over all, all, capital A, capital L, capital L, all of creation. Then you're going to come up with that idea that, well, yeah, God's not, you know, you're out here in the spinning world, and uh, yeah, we'll deal with all of the spiritualism and how we deal with, you know, that kingdom of God. Now, and what you're hearing in responses to what occurred here out of Northeast Ohio, many are talking about a term that has taken over a lot of the evangelical church called piety. And I'm not going to get into the details of that. You can look for that in some of the interesting responses that are out there. And I'll put some links to that. Uh, in, and they are. They're in the, in the newsletter, so you can check that out. But he goes on, Mayhew goes on to talk about uh, what is 
that calling together all about? Why, why do you even want to do it? He goes, if it was something less than such an important event, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can read it yourself. It's in the, it's there that you can link to and download out of the references with my side notes. I'm not afraid to post those too, is that, you know, he's calling and saying, you know, this is something, this is really something special. This propagate, it, it's a memorable occasion. We need to really take notice of it. And that if there was a lesser occasion, you know, would, would we even, you know, come together on this? Would we have looking at it? Because, you know, what's a pretentious and even vulgar displays for lesser things? So he talks about that. Hey, you're out there partying over something that isn't all that important. Something like a Super Bowl game or national champion ships, you're out there having, you know, pretentious and even vulgar celebrations and displays over those simple types of things. So when I look at it from our modern time, there's a lot of that that went on. But this, this is amazing. He talks about the appearance of ostination, which when we go back to what Webster defines it as, is that of pretentious and vulgar display, especially of wealth and luxury, intended to impress or attract notice. We see that in a lot of different ways. But when he says, so far as himself and what he's heard, there was very little or uh, any prospect of any of that going on, and that people wanted to voluntarily gather and he hopes that uh, this will all be rendered unto God and that it will bring some glory to his name and that he's going to graciously accept it. And here's an order. This is the order that comes from Christ in how the Godhead somewhat functions is that he says that he, God the Father, will graciously accept it through our Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous, our mediator and advocate with the Father. He outlines how we should pray and give glory and give thanks for those things that happen, not just, you know, all the way to the small things, as well as all of the great things. And then he quotes here that we only exercise that liberty wherewith Christ had made us free, being desirous with all other persons and churches should do the same. So other Christians should be that. Even the Gentile, even the, the pagan, even any citizen should do the same and not choosing that either they or we should be entangled with any yoke of bondage. So the first truth that he lays out in a series of truths is that God is sovereign over all, and he is involved in every aspect of a person's life, as well as the life of a nation. In addition to that, liberty, true liberty, only comes from Christ. So this goes then to what I read in the last segment about Ezra Stiles and what he was saying, where we can only have a good government. Where does that come from? How can we have a functional constitution? And what he was hoping for in this paragraph in total is that, hey, what about the Tory Christians? Where are they? They could even 
be blessed by the changes of this act, to the, the taking and getting rid of the Stamp Act. And every citizen, even those that have no Christian affiliation, the pagan, the atheist, all of the other weird ones out there, they will benefit from this. So let me take you into this tie point now. When we look at then the adherence to constitutional law and the rule of law in these United States, and we look at our most troubling incidents, our invasion right now, if truly immigration policy that is in place, not the policy as much as the laws that are in place were followed, you can stop all of the harm and cost of illegal immigration right now. But as it was at the beginning, and we'll see in the explanations, the administration didn't want to do that with the Stamp Act then, nor does our present administration want to do any such thing. And we'll get into how much it costs, what details of evil was brought upon the citizens in the colonies during the Stamp Act, no different than what we're experiencing right now here in these United States in relationship to the invasion of illegals that are coming in. So Sam Adams understood all this. We're going to come back just to the very beginning in this last segment when we get there and understand the principles that I can't emphasize enough, the sovereignty of God over everything. And if every pastor acknowledged that and preached by it, it would be a whole different nation. Welcome back to this last segment. If Samuel Adams returns, those anti-federalists did get it correct, and this is Tom Novolis, your host. And <clears throat> continuing on with Mayhew, just uh, we're touching the wet water. I mean, we haven't even gotten through uh, a couple pages of 28 pages. <laughs> it possibly could take the whole month of February just on Mayhew. Well, I'll try and speed it up for you a tad. But by virtue of what we see in the muddled theological mess in the evangelical churches, and I would say with the exception of a number of the foundational fundamental reform churches in America today, and that is cross-denominational reform churches, except for a few. I mean, there's a few out there that follow Tim Keller. It, it, that doesn't make sense. How do you get a Reformed church following Tim Keller? All right. Anyway, I won't go down that path right here. But let's get back to Mayhew. And he, what he was talking about is having rendered our devote thanks to God, whose kingdom ruleth over all. Once again, emphasizing that should unmuddle, unintoxicate, un swamp every pastor out there is looking first at God ruleth over all. 
Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. He is the King of kings over all of creation, over every nation, over every person in political office. They don't recognize that because we haven't taught them to recognize that their authority is ultimately given to them in Christ to represent us, we the people, and interestingly enough, as who? Ezra Stiles says, is that the reason for government is that holiness ought to be the end of civil government. Wow. Can you think of a political leader that even has an inkling of that? Let alone church leaders that have an inkling of that. So we'll just kind of cruise on through here, and I want you to understand that Mayhew was involved and a partaker of standing against the Stamp Act. So he says here, believe me, I lately took no inconsiderable, which means insignificant part, with you in your grief and gloomy apprehensions on account of a certain parliamentary act, which you suppose ruinous in its tendency to American plantations and eventually to Great Britain itself. Now, what he said there is that he took no insignificant part. That means he took a significant part. He participated in the grief and the gloomy apprehensions of what was going on with that legislation and the administration of it. No different than pastors should be taking a significant part in standing against the evils of anything with illegal immigration, climate change, or any other woke, fanciful, political agendas of, I will call it, the left and right establishment tyranny. So we're seizing that. He's doing that. He's talking about that. Uh, and he said, which you suppose ruinous in its tendency to America plantations and eventually to Great Britain. Now, in this particular aspect, what we can look at is that he was taught, we can say of the states and of the federal republic in general, our constitutional republic in general. You can put those in, in place there. You absolutely can, based on the references of what we understand was going on from the structure of the colonial structure and a national basis. Now, when he's looking at all of this, he said about the colonies are were emancipated from a slavish, inglorious bondage and are reinstated to the enjoyment of their ancient rights and privileges. So we have a lot going on here in America in the slavishness of all of the policies coming out of our present generation. And the slavishness of all of that and the inglorious bondage is what's happening in lawfare. 
lawfare being the biggest destruction both of our holy religion to a lot of extent? How is it that a 73-year-old man standing there with a sign against abortion is now facing 11 years in prison, as well as his co-defendants? Where is First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of expression? Yet, on the other side of the fence, you still have all of the LGBTQ weirdos and everything else, whatever they are, and I'll call them that because they are sinners, they're getting away with all the protest they get away with, including elected officials like members of the squad that were on the Supreme Court steps protesting the decision that was going to happen with Roe versus Wade again in the Supreme Court. Or all of those protesters in front of the justice, Supreme Court justices' homes. Or all those that are swatting different people, you know, sending SWAT squads to different people's homes, and they can't be found. They're nowhere to be found. Or the person that puts a pipe bomb during January 6th that weren't really pipe bombs in front of the Democratic headquarters and Republican headquarters in Washington, D.C. to do a setup. Or and on and on. Mayhew talks about that in the perspective that what we have is slavish, inglorious bondage. And we need a reinstatement. So we haven't seen a turn of events yet here in these United States that can shift us around based on the insidiousness of all of the other parties involved. So he comes in here, and this I thought was interesting, and just to summarize it, is that he said, when you requested me to preach the sermon on a joyful occasion, <clears throat> I concluded it was neither your expectation or desire that I should enter uh, very particularly into a political consideration of the affair. Had I not conceived this to be your intention, I must though with reluctance, have given you a partly, in some measure, from a conviction, meaning the state of being convinced or convicted by my conscience, of impropriety, that unsuitableness, refusal of minute discussion points on this nature in the pulpit, and particularly from a sense of my own inability to do it as it ought to be done. So Mayhew just lays out what you, know, you could say a lot of the pietist evangelical pastors out there, those that don't see the necessity to become involved in the political, cultural battles, warfare that's happening. Mayhew kind of goes there, you know, this isn't normal for me him in particular, to you know, come across on these types of issues, and he's not necessarily the, 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 the one that has the level of experience that they would want to hear on this, but he was convicted in his understanding that this needed to be done. So he's going to do the best answer that he can, and uh, that he hopes that his counsel and exhortations respecting your duty 
to God and man that they're agreeable to the sacred oracles. So he's going to do everything, and everything that he does in the remainder of this sermon, he does it from his full Puritan Reformation biblical points of reference. That's pretty important. But then he lays it back, and you have to understand, it all lays back on you and your responsibility and your duty, your duty as a human, created human before God, and then in that relationship to your fellow man. So he lays out then his purpose of the discourse and saying, therefore, that he's chiefly deciding to do this as God gives him the ability to, that he is praying in here that God gives him the ability to speak and that you, us, we will hear. You know, that's what happens a lot of times uh, when people go to church. You know, they sit there on their smartphones. Oh, yeah, I'm looking at the Bible. No, they're not. They're flipping through everything else that's there. Or preacher says something, and they go off on a tangent. I personally think that all uh, digital devices should be left at the door when you walk into a church. Bring in your hard-bound Bible and uh, forget about the digital devices and There's the potential to become too easily distracted. So he says they're coming together for that time out of the ordinary course, out of the ordinary Sunday church meeting. And the whole idea is that is to uh, God's honor and the Christian edification. So he's looking at this to be adapted to the great occasion. And instead of being general, He is going to come in at it from a specific view. And with that specific view, uh, he's hoping that the listeners will be sensible about the occasion itself, and therefore he's going to lay out a premise on this whole idea of what he's going to talk about. And then he gets into the historical perspective of the Stamp Act. And I'm going to go through a couple notes here in this last few minutes that we have. So he looks at the greater context of what it is, and he's not trying to derive it just from his own prejudices and perspective and relationship to what went on with the Stamp Act and its historical uh, references that he has from the encumbrances of the whole thing. And he's trying to keep in his wheelhouse as much as possible, but he's trying to establish a good sense of the whole situation. And we need that. We need that from the pulpits and understanding that in particular. And I have my favorite uh, home church up in Moscow, Idaho, that I think that the people do stay in not only their wheelhouse, but have that greater perspective of the sovereignty of God, and then can take and look at the whole situation from a biblical perspective. So then he takes you through the history of what happened and that uh, the people were made slaves, not by conquest and war, but by what happened from an idea of uh, needing money for government and that it was other persons that established this. 
and where he takes and he brings it out is that uh, that our charters uh, granted us the ability uh, in establishing certain aspects of law, self-taxation, a number of that, and that the all fundamental rights came from the British Constitution, which was established through Magna Carta. And any act that is passed that violates those fundamental principles is null and void. And if you're a true constitutionalist that understands these basic truths that go back to 1766, you know that bad laws that are passed now, bad policy are and should be null and void. But we don't have the integrity of even pastors out there, let alone politicians, to take that position. So with that, we're down to the last few seconds. Sam Adams understood this. He helped bring those ideas of truth to bear, and we became a great nation, therefore, but now we're slipping. We're slipping and have slid away. Come on back next week.